Welcome to Ruthiology. Head over to Ruthiology.org and check us out. Welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast, and tonight we're talking about religionless Christianity, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, some Bonhoeffer and uh, how we define religion, what's going on. We're well glad to have you join us. If you want to know more about us, you can find us on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology, Instagram and Facebook at Brew Theology, and if you like what you hear in the work that we're doing, you can support us on Patreon at Brew Theology. So we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this week's show. We've got a group up on uh, Facebook that you can interact with and talk to us about. We're going to introduce ourselves, and then Andy's going to give us some background on this uh, piece of curriculum. So I'm Janelle. I'm one of the co-hosts, and I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene. I am now uh, under the label of Progressive Christian and run a small house church in my home, help run Brew Theology, and I'm working on a book project. You'll learn more about that later. And uh, I am drinking a completely amazing Weldworks Brewing Coffee Coconut Stout. I cannot uh, praise this enough. It is phenomenal. It's out of Greeley, Colorado. So, hey, Weldworks, anytime you want to send us um, some free beer for the podcast, we'll take it. So that's a gift from Donnie. Donnie is the director of Greeley Brew Theology. And so Weldworks, from what I understand, is going to come to the Theology Beer Camp in Denver in November. Woo-hoo! That's what Trip told me. So Trip from Homebrewed, I'm giving you a shout out right now. If those words fail and they're, uh, you know, they're null, then we're going to have to have a talking to. So Weldworks, that's what we, we heard, that you're going to be a part of Theology Beer Camp. We want a, we want a, a, a whole barrel is it a barrel or a cask or quarter barrel? Quarter Holy barrel? crap, that would be amazing. I'll uh, take that home. We want all of this you can bring, okay? Just knock yourselves out. Hey, I'm Rob. I grew up Catholic uh, in a devout Catholic household. I now fall under the label of progression Christ, progressive Christian as well. Uh, and I attend Brew Theology here in Denver every week. I am also drinking the Weldworks Coffee Coconut Stout. It is delicious. Thank you, Donnie. Uh, really enjoying it and excited to be here tonight. Hi, I'm Kelly, and I'm also a member of the Brew Theology Group, obviously. I was raised Catholic and then in my young adulthood uh, converted over to just new age and spirituality. And I think today I would identify as still new age and a pluralist. And tonight I'm drinking uh, something from the Hop Valley Brewing Company out of Eugene, Oregon. It's called Divine Shine. It's a hybrid ale. My name's Eric. I was raised in an evangelical home. Uh, went to a very conservative evangelical college. Walked away from the church for quite a while. Um, I would now identify myself as a pluralist, searching um, many different faiths, interested in all, and uh, just curious. Tonight, I am also drinking the Divine Shine from uh, Hop Valley Brewing Company. My name's Caroline Jane Miller. What's your religion? I don't know. We talked about this earlier. If someone says, what do you believe, what do you say? I say I believe in God and faith. All right. So this is Caroline's dad, Ryan. And most of you all know I grew up Southern Baptist, evangelical and deconstructed that about 20 years ago. 
glean a lot from the Anabaptist tradition within the Baptist faith. The UMC worked in the Methodist Church for a while. The some of the Pentecostal tradition, not not the snake handling stuff, but I'm a reluctant charismatic, and I like the mystery behind it. And then the Jewish aspect of the first century Jesus sage that we choose to follow. So I'm an evolving Anabaptist method, Jewcostal, with some process feelers in there as well, and a little bit of liberation from those um, who have influenced me throughout the years. Oh, I'm drinking Odd 13's Intergalactic Juice Hunter. And if Odd 13 would like to sponsor any podcast, it doesn't matter which one, yes, anytime, please. I love you, Odd 13. I love your juicy, oh, new, it's all that New England stuff. It's so tasty. You just can't let it sit too long, because then it all sits in the bottom, but... If you don't like the New England style, Janelle, there's something wrong with you. you you've got to like... I don't know that I've tried it. Take a sip. Oh, on this the is, this air. Is, this is live. We're not editing this. Oh, oh, oh no. Oh, no. Is it uh, too many hops for you? No, it's awesome. Yeah. It's delicious. I like it. See, Lauren will say, oh, I like the, the flavors of the juice, but it's too hoppy. Like, well, you got, you got to no, get... No, it's actually got a really nice balance. I really like it. And this is Andy. Um, I grew up in an interfaith household. So my dad's family is all Jewish. My mom's family is Christian. I identify as a Christian and I'm part of the United Methodist Church, even though I kind of butt heads with the church sometimes. I am drinking a coffee coconut stout, but I'm about to crack open a billion dollar baby from Bear Brewing, which is an IPA with some grapefruit and orange peel. Um, and just a bit of background about the content tonight. I'm actually cheating. This is going to be part of a talk I give at Wild Goose. So you all should come to Wild Goose because it's going to be great. Um, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer is somebody who's fascinated me for a long time. Um, he was a German Lutheran theologian. Um, he was an activist in some ways. He was an academic. But he is somebody who wrestled with his theology from his very young age until the day he died. Um, a lot of it is contradictory, a lot of it is incomplete, particularly his older writings. Um, this comes from his letters and papers from prison, but I'm excited to see the way this conversation goes and how it can influence the talk at Wild Use. Let's read that quote that you have in there in the middle. That's a great one. All right, and so this quote is from uh, letters and papers from prison. The questions to be answered would surely be, what do a church, a community, a sermon, a liturgy, a Christian life mean in a religionless world? How do we speak of God without religion, i.e. without the temporally conditioned presuppositions of metaphysics, inwardness, and so on? How do we speak, or perhaps we cannot now even speak as we used to, in a secular way about God? In what way are we religionless secular Christians? In what way are we those who are called forth not regarding ourselves from a religionless point of view, especially favored, but rather as belonging wholly to the world. All right, let's just start off with just the first first question is a good lead in. And I think if we do that, we'll get back to that context. But so have you all ever heard the term religionless Christianity or other seemingly paradoxical constructions? And where have you heard them? When did you hear them? What kind of feelings did you have when you heard them? Maybe you were the one that actually was the one that said it. <laughs> no, I've, I've definitely heard not that term specifically, but um, growing up in um, the evangelical kind of charismatic tradition and stuff, I mean, it was a badge of courage that people walked around with was non-denominational. You know, I think it had a very similar connotation in that 
in that circle of, you know, churches and peoples and so forth, you know, the whole concept of I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, you know, that was a little more to the left, you know, and a little crazy for us. But um, I think, you know, the whole concept of non-denominational, hey, we don't belong to anything. We just kind of do our own thing. So I'm not going to name names or talk about any churches poorly. That said, good luck. A, a few of us around the table live in the same neighborhood, and I'm curious if you got a flyer in the mail about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, and it was very vague, and it looked like a normal family with another family of another race, and they were gardening together, and you're like, okay, what is, this is interesting, and then you look at the back, and it's like, we're, we're not religious, it's, and so then you go to the website, and it's the most vague non-religious, like help me understand like if there are any tenets of faith, any vision, any mission, it's all about loving your neighbor. And I actually, I finally met one of the leaders of this place, not naming names, I'm going to do this. And he specifically said, we're not a religious church. And I just sat there and I listened to him for about 30 minutes. And the whole time I'm like, who are you fooling? Like we're all religious, but how, how he tried so hard in this specific neighborhood to make sure everybody from the flyers that went out to the people he interacted with knew that they were not religious. And yet, it, it, it's, this specific church is very evangelical. Well, and being dogmatic about not being religious is kind of religious. Yeah, off of that, I mean, part of me thinks of the Pew studies that have come out over the last, you know, 10 years or so and how consistently we see a rise in nuns and duns, so people who... Um, identify as spiritual, but they don't have a religious affiliation. They're folks who were affiliated, who have either been burned by the church or been forced out of the church, and so they're in that done space. And so like that number is, is rising, and I don't know if it's fed by the same things, but I do think we're, we're going to be forced more and more to grapple with this, because particularly if you look at millennials and younger, I mean, you're looking at anywhere from 40 to 60% who identify as that spiritual but not religious or that none category. And so that's a huge swath of, of our country. Um, so it's, yeah, it's there, and we might as well talk about it if it's there instead of trying to act like it's not there. Well, and I think you have a huge amount of Xers that are also entering that category if they're not already there, um, because as they're trying to work out their recovery from very religious Christianity, um, it often leads to walking away and not knowing, not having a place where you fit and not knowing how to move forward. And so they become duns as well. Yeah, I mean, I would think in a way that there is a, there's a positive side to that to where if you're open to say, okay, I get people have been hurt by other people in the institution and we might roll our eyes and go, oh, everybody's religious. Uh, there's an element of that where, you know, you have to lean in and hear people's hurt stories for sure, regardless of their generation. But yeah, you're, you're definitely seeing more of that. And I guess another side of this, that's a bit of a tangent, but I think of, you know, people who say I'm Jewish, but I'm an atheist or I'm Muslim, but I'm an atheist. And how religion kind of functions as that cultural identity, but not necessarily a theological or, or spiritual identity behind us. And so um, that kind of takes us the opposite direction, but there's still that kind of playing with those different identities that are taking place, whether it be identity with a community, identity with a doctrine, or with a, a larger stream of, of historical faith. Yeah, I would even say, I can, I can speak not um, specifically for certain people, but in our groups around the table on a, any given week, we'll have people who will say, I'm a Christian, but I'm... I don't know if there's a God. Oh, okay. But usually there's a, there's a heritage there. Uh, there's something that's 
familial and comfortable and, and even going through those religious motions to a degree, especially with mom and, you know, if mom and dad are still alive or if they're not going back to the big other from a few weeks ago with tad delay, that's a drive where I don't want to be religious, but I'm part of me feels, um, to honor my heritage. I need to be. Well, I think people have gotten to the point where, uh, it becomes more to Andy's point, cultural, I was raised in this tradition. I was raised around this group of people, but it's also become more philosophical. I mean, they want to eliminate the metaphysical from it, right? The, the big, the big one or whatever it is, you know, the thing that's looking down and judging and, and, um, you know, by hook or crook guiding your life, you know, to where you have no choices. It's become more philosophical. This is a credo. This is a, a morality. This is stuff that I can believe in and I can follow, but I don't buy the rest of it. And not to jump the gun, but this kind of goes to Bonhoeffer's point about can we speak about faith and religion without that language, without that lingo of church, faith, Jesus, salvation, whatever language you want to use there. Like, what does that actually sound like or look like? And like, he never gives a, an answer. He kind of leaves it up. Like, can we even talk about this? And I'm curious if other folks, like, can we do that? Is that possible to strip away all of those other metaphysical presuppositions or the language that we use and the baggage tied with it and still have some kind of kernel left? I think especially for people coming out of more conservative evangelical traditions, that gets really difficult because as you start to work through those things and try to find other language, like you'll stumble upon something that calls that back. Um, so like I'm in a conversation right now with a good friend who wants to use the word good news as kind of a definer of what we're doing with some curriculum ideas. And that just makes me recoil. <laughs> Like, and I know that that's a really standard term. It's an old term. It goes all the way back to the foundations. But man, there's definitely some baggage that's attached itself to that word that just makes it really hard for me to kind of meet that word as what it is and not attach my preconceptions to it. And how hard is it if every single time we have any kind of like signifier, any, any like if it's all a language deal, like, okay, now it's been another five minutes talking about the word good and then news where you could just say, it's a badass message. You might be into that, but that might not fly for the other nine out of 10 people. It's, it's hard to have a collective language. I think is it one word can mean even around this table right now, if we said gospel, we would have some cringing or even good news, but yet it might, it, even, even contextually it might mean something different for Let's each person it. around here. Let's do it. Should we do good news? You want to do good news? Not really. I think we should because you started it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Janelle, you should start with good news. This is what I get for volunteering. Um, so when I hear the word good news, I think what carries with that in my head is an explicit salvation kind of narrative that you must follow these certain steps to then make sure that Jesus lives in your heart and that you're saved. I think it's definitely like what well, that's not <laughs> what the word means but that is the way the good news is there so that you might be saved um and i think i think that's doubly hard because while i feel like jesus and i are okay a lot of people would tell me that i need the good news because i've lost it 
I agree with your definition as well in the context of our culture, that it does mean the good news of the Lord or the good news of the salvation of Jesus in our cultural context. See, I really try and reclaim that good news language because I think it has some real theological meat. Um, evangelical, the roots of evangelism, evangelical is, is good. It's gospel. It's good news. And yet, like in the Methodist world, which is where I spend a lot of time, the good good news is a incredibly conservative anti-LGBTQ caucus group that is fighting for what they call a traditional understanding of of marriage and of relationships. And so like I use good news a lot in certain academic settings and I refuse to use it in any kind of Methodist settings because the definitions are taken so differently. I'm going to get biblical here. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I think that when Jesus uses this in Luke chapter 4, and he says the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, that to me, having worked at a UMC church at the time, um, I think that gave me that permission to really contextually look at what gospel meant. And if that's what it meant, I think that most people would be okay with it, unless they're just dicks. Pretty much agree with what Janelle said. I mean, that's from my background and stuff that would be the same thing it's the you know the little tracks that get handed out you know the things that you were uh the messages the you know the different um stories and everything that you're supposed to be telling your friends your neighbors the all that kind of stuff you're supposed to be spreading the good news which came with its own level of exclusivity because if my news is good yours isn't yeah, from a Catholic background, I mean, the good news had less association with the terminology of being saved, but the good news was the gospel. The good news was uh, the dogma of the Catholic Church. That was the good news, and living the good news or spreading the good news uh, was spreading the gospel of the church, the Catholic Church, the original church, right? So, um, so that was yeah. the good news and the Catholic Church. So herein lies the problem, language. How do you have a collective language if the six of us around this table, uh, we see each other on a pretty consistent ba basis, we're in the same contextual brew theology gatherings, pretty progressive for the most part, and yet we, we all hear those two words together, and clearly y'all heard different things. So we're screwed, Andy. Thanks a lot. When Andy was asking about the religionless language, it, it brings, like, I'm, I'm the Parker Palmer guy, so it brings up my favorite author, right, who's a, a self-proclaimed Quaker uh, author who writes about spiritual, spiritual development of educators. And he, he essentially writes in the language of academics because he's academically trained. He's a PhD from Cal Berth, Berkeley, and he, he writes about epistemology and ways of knowing. And he and Arthur Zionk wrote an amazing book called The Heart of Higher Education where they talk about intimacy with material um, intimacy with research, intimacy with topics. And they sort of use that epistemology ways of knowing and becoming intimate with material as code for some sort of spirituality. Now, I think a lot of people also hear academic terminology and think that just sucks all of the energy and the life and the sanctity out of language. And, um, and for them, that was their way to write about I mean, my interpretation is that's their way to write about religion as it relates to our interaction with material in the world. However, certainly if you talk to somebody 
with a staunch religious background, they'd say, actually, what these two have done has, you know, they've removed the, they've stripped the the divinity and sanctity and sacredness out of, uh, out of religion and turned it into this sterile academic thing. Um, and that wasn't necessarily how I interpreted it or understood it. And that might be uh, a good sort of modern example of language of religion without, without um, religious language. Did I say that right? And, uh, and I think it's, it's interesting to, to think about because I also think I, I worked a lot with college students and I think a lot about in the academic setting, does it actually take a, in my language now after sort of working with some of these social justice educators would be epistemology, a shift in people's epistemology or ways of knowing to get them to think more critically about topics. Or some people might say a consciousness shift or a religious or spiritual shift. But when you start introducing that kind of language, particularly in public higher education, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I have to kind of go back to Rabbi Stephen Butnadav, who was on one of our earlier podcasts, and he and I actually, we had, we had coffee last week, and he was talking about, we were both talking about religion, and whether it's Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and he says, you know, what's interesting is that it's, religion is simply trying to, to dig deeper into the spirit. So he's like, that's, that's, that's and maybe that word has, is a hard word for people, but whether it's a uh, Christian language or Muslim language or Jewish of it, of all the different sects within that. He's like, ultimately people are just trying to unveil that awakening, deeper spirit, that thing that connects with them to the divine. And even if the word divine, right, is a, is a bad word for them, something of, of that level of that transcendent nature. And ultimately, you know, if you give people the benefit of the doubt, I think that I think we have to give people grace when they speak and each and ourselves grace. If we get the, the words wrong, or whatever that means, so to speak. Um, so being patient with each other, helping people unpack what they mean by that, because ultimately I think, I think it, is, it is a connection to the divine. Even if the word makes you cringe, okay, let's unpack that. But then going back to that word, it's, it's a, perhaps a beautiful word for somebody else. And I think Bonhoeffer was, and this is completely me, this is not direct from him, but when I read it, I don't necessarily see him um, critiquing, trying to put language to religion as much as using religion and religious language to justify some pretty horrific things. And so, like, if you look at the the, the Deutsche Christian movement, which is the German Christian movement, um, I mean, there were swastikas in cathedrals and chapels. It was a religion that was deeply tied to the state. And so when he was critiquing the language, it was not just that we're trying to put language to it. It was, we're putting some pretty hateful, destructive language to this and, and putting religion in bed with, with state powers that were absolutely destructive. Hence the religionless Christianity, right? Yeah, and Diana Thompson, who's a, a reverend, a, a Buddhist priest, was saying that they can't, they can't wear those crosses that they used to wear. In some some areas of Asia, they still do. But can you because they said that was yeah that was stolen from them. Right, that's true. We saw yeah. those symbols in Asia when we were traveling. Yeah. It's the first time I'd seen them outside of Germany and outside that context. Yeah, yeah you won't, but you won't see them with American Buddhists, obviously. So how about, how about question two is a good segue into this. So have, have you guys ever been a part of a community that claimed one thing with their language and yet had actions that conflicted with what they were claiming? And just how did that impact your relationship with that community, if at all? Good question, Andy. Getting personal. 
So to get super personal, um, two days ago in the Methodist church, they actually announced um, there was a vote. So kind of some Methodist polity and background. If we want to change our constitution, we have to have a vote and two thirds of the global body of Methodists have to agree for those changes to happen. Um, the two amendments that did not pass globally were both about women and changing language around gender and including women as a protected ca uh, class within the Methodist church. And so it was a church that claims to be very justice oriented and very progressive. And we ordain women and we say we see ministry in women for this not to pass. Um, I was super angry. Um, I was even more angry that like the, the Methodist men globally have not responded and not given their support. And so, yeah, that's actually caused some serious strain in the global Methodist church over the last two days, especially for friends of mine who are women clergy um, who are part of a denomination that says we see a call in your life, but then that we're not willing to change our language around gender to be more inclusive or to acknowledge that call. And yeah, it's incredibly destructive. I think the church is known for that, right? It has a long history of not walking the talk. So yeah. going back to good news, if <laughs> why would we have issues with that with those words? Good news. If it's good news, it should we shouldn't have issues, but clearly it's been bad for a lot of people. I had worked at a church a while back and I had changed my whole paradigm and philosophy of ministry. I was still doing the programming that needed to be done on a weekly basis, but moving that toward a direction that was more of a holistic, integrated, with families on mission, specifically for the local context of the urban poor in the city that I was in, which seems to be, by the way, good news, looking back to Isaiah 61. And I had one of the people on staff who was pretty high up, handled things of that nature, bring me into his office and had, had realized that I had had this kind of change of heart. And knew, I mean, I'm, as you guys know, I get, when I get passionate about something like it's hard for me to shut me up. And so I was talking to everybody that I could committees, parents, you know, students and all this. And, um, so he's like, closes the door and he's like, I, I see that you're headed in this, this new direction, which to me was more of an awakening. If anything, I'm like, I don't know if it's, I guess it's new it's just more of an unveiling of, of this bigger Jesus picture in our community and, and what that could look like for families. And he said, well, that's fine and all, and I guess you can do that on your spare time. But ultimately, I want you to bring in the Abercrombie and Fitch kids. No lie, those are his words, okay? And, and I think, I think that if, you, if you really look at it, I know I'm getting, you guys aren't, who are listening right now, you're not seeing the looks that I'm getting. I'm getting holy, holy S-H-I-T looks. I have to spell it because my daughter's still in the room. And so, you know, if you get those people there, that means you get the rest of the student body there, which means you get the parents there. And ultimately, butts in the seats, money in the offering, yeah. And, you know, I knew it was, I mean, this is a person who handled the business part of the, of the church. And so, and as far as affecting uh, my ministry, my relationship, Andy, I would say that after that conversation and other ordeals with this person pertaining to the same specific issues, I resigned six months later. Yeah. So there you have it. Part of my journey, and you've all heard this before, is um, belonging to a denomination where we claim, much like what is happening, I think, in the UMC, that women are equal and can be heard and can preach and teach and can be ordained. And my denomination would brag that over 50% of the women in our, people in our seminary are women. Problem is go try to find a job. And um, while there was always the annual women are equal sermon at district assembly, 
That does not change the fact that many, many, the majority of the people in our denomination did not believe that, did not agree with it, and were not willing to bring women into consideration for churches of any size usually, and definitely would not consider women for churches that they were quote-unquote unqualified for because they hadn't held a church of a smaller size. Well, it's really hard to hold a church of a smaller size when you can't get hired. And so then you're disqualified from the churches that feed into the district positions and the general positions. If you talk to people in my old denomination, you'll find out that there would be people that would disagree with me, that, oh, we're making progress. But the numbers that are on the paper, especially when we look at women in full-time senior pastoral positions alone, um, the numbers are not changing significantly. And the behaviors and the attitudes that I see every single day in my news feeds from the women's and other groups in my old denomination mean that these biases and discrimination are still happening in spite of a, a, a polity that says that you're equal. And if we're not willing to confront those biases and see them for what they are, it will not change. Um, to the point that I witnessed a conversation with a gentleman who's working very hard toward equality, mansplained an entire um, conference of women and how they should report their disagreements. And I know his heart is in the right place, um, but you, you don't even see what you're doing and you've shut the door in many ways for anyone to come into that situation and help walk a different path. And when we dehumanize 50% of our congregation or more in that way, um, there comes a point where if you start to see it, you can't unsee it. And I praise the women that have personality types and abilities to stay in those situations. More power to you ladies, go do the thing. Um, but I think it's also really important to point out that it's not a failure for me to say, and many, many other women to say, I can't do that. I, I cannot um, endorse this behavior and pretend that it doesn't affect my very being because guess what? It does. Yeah. I, I mean, the Catholic community is full of, um, uh, full of, uh, language, um, that conflicts with actions. And I mean, you know, the, the glaring huge examples, you know, of like the inquisitions and the, but more recently they, well, more recently I say, but although this has been going on for centuries, you know, the abuse scandals and, um, and that is, that's, that's, whoa, difficult to reckon with as, uh, I sort of came of age when the scandals were really becoming, uh, well, when like the spotlight era, like when there was a spotlight on the, on the, the abuse scandal to say that the Catholic church hasn't responded to the matter of fact, not, sorry, they have responded. And their response was, Let's bury this and cover it up and shelter predators. And um, that's that was a difficult uh, situation. And and I mean, there there was you were not as a as a Catholic. I can only speak as a Catholic in the U.S. 
there you couldn't really be in an area and not feel the impact of that in some way. I remember the the uh, pastor from our church for me growing up as a child. Uh, his brother was uh, was removed from um, his brother, who was also a priest, was removed from uh, his, you know his ordination was stripped and uh, and so I mean you couldn't if you were involved in the Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, my family had the whole, you know, everybody, we knew, knew the bishop and a lot of priests in the diocese. And, um, and if you were involved and ingrained in the Catholic church anywhere in the U S you were connected to someone, um, who'd been a part of that, that scandal. And, uh, I mean, that's like, those are two large examples that doesn't even get into sort of the dogma of the Catholic church that can be challenging. Um, and, and, uh, and I think in a lot of ways, Eric, you were talking about the moral compass that I think people talk about, like, oh, I was brought up and there's a lot of things about, uh, Catholicism that, that I, um, that I love. And, but there are some things that, man, I are just like hard to wrap my mind around in terms of how they have, have really damaged people, hurt people destroyed people, killed people, murdered people, et cetera. The list goes on. But isn't this just the story of institutions throughout history? Anytime you add influence, money, quite honestly, just humans to the mix, there's always going to be advantage to be gained, right? So, you know, kind of going back to, you know, the, the questions here, the one thing I was thinking about, Andy, I mean, you know, I... Honestly, I haven't read anything by Bonhoeffer and so forth. Uh, but wow, what a an incredible time in history that he was in, and some pretty overpowering circumstances that he was, you know, fighting against and so forth. But um, in any kind of large national hysteria that happens, like the Second World War and stuff. Sure, there's a few people that truly embrace that ideology and truly believe it, but the mass, the vast majority of people just go along. Why? Because they don't want to lose their influence. They don't want to lose their advantage, their money, their security, all these kinds of things. So I think that, you know, looking at the situation that he was in, I, I think this is a really awesome question. I just, you know, Kelly and I were actually talking this afternoon about the the idea of religionless Christianity, religionless religion, if you will. I think it's a two-edged sword. Because, you know, if you go back to the 1500s, when, you know, Luther broke away, well, there's a whole other group of people, the Anabaptists, that said, you didn't break away far enough. We need to really be religionless. You know, and you end up with... You know, the Anabaptist churches in Holland, you end up with the the peasant revolts and so forth in Munster. I mean, you've got people that are coming out of caves calling themselves prophet and entire populations of society follow them to their doom and gloom. Um, no structure, uh, no accountability from a higher body or a governing body, uh, no adherence to tradition, you know, and so forth. I, I, th- I think it cuts both ways. I mean, you can have institutions that absolutely use advantage to hurt society, hurt individuals, and 
quite honestly, on the other hand, you've got institutions that hurt society and hurt people. I think what makes this case particularly disturbing is that um, it was religion and it was a complicity in mass violence. And so you mentioned the Catholic Church. I think of, you know, um, people um, in El Salvador, such as Bishop uh, Oscar Romero, um, somebody who did pretty much the same thing as Bonhoeffer said, you know, the the church, the Catholic Church is complicit with a violent military regime. And he was murdered during mass for saying that. And so for me, there's something about, yeah, I expect institutions to be flawed, to be destructive, to do these horrible things. But when it's the church that's backing it, like there's just there's an extra moral kind of like punch in the gut. Like, hey, we should be better than this. But is that your punch in the gut? Is that from your background? Oh, your absolutely. History? Yeah, that's from my my history, my cultural baggage, my yeah. you know half my family being Jewish. So when I, I see the I church, and I state, don't want to yeah. put words into her mouth, but I think that Kelly would have a far less visceral reaction to that than you would. Interesting. I don't think she's ever expected much from the institution of a church or religion. Fair enough. It's true. Well, fortunately, because my mother was Catholic and then she had a feminist awakening, became very angry with the church and left the church when I was in junior high. So and she was, um, you know, very disillusioned and she had her mix, her mixed bag, too, because she'd had uh, experiences with wonderful priests. She's had experiences with terrible priests. She had experience with wonderful nuns. Uh, but at the end of the day, she decided it was, you know sexist and misogynistic and was not serving the good of the people at large and the good news is we all got out of catholic school <laughs> so do you think that a religionless fill in the blank is possible in our current cultural context well i think religionless christianity is is prevalent and is uh, very much at large. I mean, based on my limited exposure, you know, having left the church a long time ago and not attending every week. Because when I see religionless here, and as this gentleman is putting it forth, is that people are, are saying, yes, I'm a Christian, but they have completely abandoned, like I said, the inwardness, the metaphysics of it, the, um, you know, the, the divinity, the social consciousness, the self-awareness uh, for external social, cultural, political contexts. So I, I think that that's, um, my, my personal opinion is I think it's quite prevalent. I guess my pushback to that would be like religionless Christianity. I think there is so much baggage today with the term Christian and Christianity. If you were to go outside of the U.S., you mentioned Christianity in a U.S. context, you're, people are going to think conservative, evangelical, Republican, um, anti-abortion, in some cases, anti-woman, like that, that is what my non-Christian friends, especially ones that I, when I was living internationally, I get to, that's what they hear when they hear American Christian. They don't hear like this, they don't even believe this exists. Like there isn't a progressive voice. No, Christian means conservative Republicans. Um, and that's not a crack against Republicans, but that's just, I don't know if we can divorce that term Christian from the baggage in this day and age. And yeah, coming from, or being in that tradition, I, I, I feel that tension very much in t just giving my label on the podcast, like, because I don't want those assumptions made about my belief system. Um, and so how, you know, how do we talk about being Christian 
in our culture and but make it clear that we don't agree with those things and that that's a challenge trying to walk that How, who was the gentleman that came and spoke to us about evangelicalism oh from denver seminary um what was his name dr burchard yeah yeah that's right you know one one thing that he kind of harped on a couple of times was how he felt that the term evangelical had been hijacked, you know, and uh, for better or worse, um, he was put off by the fact that, you know, he kind of wanted to hold on to it. He was like, damn it, you know what, I am an evangelical and, you know, all of this baggage that goes along with the term, that's not evangelical. I am based on tradition and so forth. So, you know, one thing that just came up as you guys were talking there is, you know, maybe the example that Bonhoeffer puts forth here about the condition of the German church at that time, maybe that's the religionless Christianity. Maybe we should be more comfortable embracing the term religious, especially based off the reading that Ryan did in Isaiah, right? Um, if that's the definition of good news or religion, I'm on board. Are you? Everybody's yeah. nodding their heads. I'm, I'm on board, but can, can we reclaim that term? Like, what does it take? How many people have to say, no, not that kind of Christian, before we can kind of reclaim Christian? Or, hey, no, not that form of Buddhist. Or Buddhism or, no, or Islam. not that or, form of, right, Muslim, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I mean... I- in our current cultural context, like we're sitting here living in 2018 with, and I'm talking about cultural context, so U.S. cultural, and even global pol- political context. I mean, if you want to expand it beyond the U.S., currently, do I think it's really challenging? Yes. And part of this is I've had conversations with friends in a similar way that you've talked about, Andy. Actually, it was on the, I talked about the spotlight on the, uh, the, um, uh, abuse in the Catholic church. It was on the way home from wa- seeing the movie spotlight that we engaged in this conversation of like how I could sort of still embrace the label Christian with some friends who are dear, dear friends and ask the question with total openness and, uh, and really wanted to hear my answer. And even for those people who I've known for 20 years and, I'm really close with, it was difficult for them to, it wasn't a difficult conversation to have. They were interested, but I still think that there was difficult for them to understand how I embrace sort of like, yeah, I still embrace the, the label Christian, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of nuance there. Um, and so in the current cultural context, it's really, it feels really difficult but I did, uh, I did, and I've never, I've never claimed the term evangelical ever, but I totally empathized with Dr. Burchard, who was talking about the term evangelical or evangelicalism. And there was like two or three, you know, 22 to 23 year olds. And this isn't, uh, I'm not, this isn't supposed to be, um, ageist, ageist right saying like, I'm ready to throw out evangelical yesterday. Like, what the hell are we even doing here? No problem. I'm totally Christian. I'm ready to throw out the term evangelical. And I empathized with him. I don't know, at least in his fifties up there in front of the group. 
talking about the term, wanting to say, look, I'm evangelical. The rest of this is bullshit. Uh, or the baggage around it is bullshit. And, um, and I, I sort of, on one hand related to like these 22, 23 year olds, their version of cultural evangelical, even evangelism or evangelicalism is like, you know, since they were 16. So the last seven years, so what, like Ted Cruz and, uh, Franklin Graham and, uh, you know, Pat Robertson. Absolutely. 700. What is that? The 700 club? Is that right? And, uh, and so I, it was interesting to see that interaction in the back of grandma's house. Cause I'm like, I totally get where those 23 year olds are coming from because they've got like 10 years of background with this term. And I absolutely can see where this guy who's had a lifetime of, of evangelicalism saying no, absolutely. And I, I wasn't there for that conversation. I actually, I wanted to be there and watched online through the Facebook live. Um, but I guess my pushback would be the evangelicals he wants to identify with, you know, the Walter Rauschenbusch, the folks from the turn of the century who did incredible work, you know, the social gospel, they would not recognize evangelicalism in that term today. Like they would not see the same stream that they were supporting with the way the evangelical church is functioning in American society today. Can you elaborate on that? Um, Rauschenbusch was all about working with the poor and the marginalized, was about social services, was about things like a social safety net and saying that as Christians, there was a moral obligation to do those things. If you look at the religious right, it's all about deconstructing that social safety net. It's about bootstraps theology. It's about prosperity gospel. And like that is as far away from his belief as possible. And yeah, that's what a lot of evangelicals who want to reclaim the term go back to. And so I wonder how helpful is a term if there is such a vast gap between the folks at Walter Rauschenbusch and the folks at the Franklin Grams of today. Pam Eisenbaum, shout out. Paul was not a Christian. 